You take the red pill. You take the red pill. You take the red pill. I am your president of law and order and order and order and order. We are transforming a once sick society, once sick society into a hopeful place. You take the red pill. You take the red pill. You take the red pill. Of course I'm dangerous. I'm police. I'm police. I'm police. I'm police. can do terrible things to people. With impunity, with impunity. Stand back and stand by and stand by and stand by. The government put in bed with the entire telecommunications industry system. You take the red pill. They've infected everything. Get into your bank statements, computer files, emails, to your phone calls. More technology you use, easier it is for them to keep tabs on. This is a great fourth turning in American history. Tremendous hatred. We are things that labor under the illusion of having a self, having a self, having a self. Professional anarchists, violent moms, arsons, looters, criminals, rioters, Antifa, Antifa, Antifa. Great fourth turning in American Let them call you racist. Because every day we get stronger and they get weaker. You take the red pill. You take the red pill. You take the red pill. We should not be scared of what will happen if we try. We should be scared of what will happen if we don't. Very fine people on both sides. To brave the world out there is the better be. You have to see it for yourself. You have to see it for yourself. You have to see it for yourself. Yes, we should be scared. Not of trying but of what happens if we don't. You're listening to Navarra FM on Resonance 104.4 FM London and worldwide. I am James Butler. What is it to stare reality in the face? Can you survive it? That question is one significantly older than us and older than our civilization. It's a perennial theme of Gnostic saints and mystics as much as social reformers and revolutionaries. As you heard there, of course, in the cyber-Gnostic film The Matrix which is a film that is best thought of as having no sequels, although why it's so difficult to follow up a narrative of Gnostic emancipation is worth contemplating. In that film, awakening to brutal reality from the simulacrum comes, of course, via the red pill. Anyone who's sailed into the dark waters of online reaction will also know how that phrase has mutated into a neo-fascist catchphrase. Taking the red pill means awakening from what they see, as the collective delusion of democratic politics, equality, human rights, and so on. So much alt-right drivel, you might think. And yet, there's something true, perhaps even alluring, about the narrative of psychic crisis, of disorientation, of even social breakdown, which feeds into that. And I knew just who to talk to about it. My name's Hari Kunzru. I'm a novelist. My latest book is called Red Pill. And yes, I should say here at the top of the show that the novel is a story of a writer's encounter with the alt-right and the kind of crisis that engenders in him. And it's entirely gripping, it's compelling, and it's actually very, very funny. Uh, I should also point out that on top of the book, Harry has also been releasing a fascinating podcast, Into the Zone, which will very likely appeal to fans of Navarra FM. And that's a title that, you know, obviously ultimately comes out of The Matrix. Um, And I like everybody else, was quite struck by the simplicity of the of the options given to Neo. And I think I next encountered it um, 
probably when it was becoming a phrase in in the sort of pickup artists scene and i i don't know that might have been like mid 2000s or something like that um somebody actually got sent a copy of a book called the game for review i have no idea why i got on that particular list but it was a it was a sort of famous pickup artist manual and i i mean i don't know whether the phrase is in there but certainly around then I I kind of started looking in a slightly appalled way at this this scene with um you know where men are being are being taught these supposed techniques to to pick up women and then by the you know I blinked and then the next time I I noticed the phrase it had mutated into a a political phrase really and I saw it on the chans and I saw it in various kind of far right Twitter feeds and things like that as a as a phrase for basically a kind of awakening to an extreme right worldview. Are you red pilled on the JQ? Are you uh, red pilled on the Jewish question? Do you believe that the Holocaust was a as a hoax? And I, I don't know. It's been it's been a kind of weird internet preoccupation of mine almost since I got an internet connection, which would be like the early 90s, I think 92 or 93 was the first time I was online. And that was just about the time the World Wide Web started. And even early on then, there were already there was already some sort of far-right organising going on. And um, every so often over the years, I would go through a phase of kind of just checking in with that culture and, and seeing what was happening there, because I've always considered it, you know, for obvious reasons, a very sort of direct threat to, to myself. And... Um, in the spirit of sort of having an early warning system, really. And and then right round about kind of 2010-ish, I guess, kind of maybe slightly later than that, I started noticing, you know, a real kind of uh, flourishing of far-right culture. I mean, it, for years it had been this rather moribund business, you know, the, the kind of very tired old anti-Semitic tropes, the same kind of terrible oi bands, the kind of, you know, a sort of a sort of subculture that was never going to grow out of its very, very kind of unappealing to the majority uh, little hole. But then suddenly, I mean, I think they discovered irony and they discovered humour and they discovered the memes and uh, all that really gave them a kind of outreach that is sort of unprecedented certainly I would say in my lifetime or certainly since I was a kid kind of I think you could say that the the 70s 80s far right maybe in Britain had quite kind of a a reach but this this sort of mainstreaming of a lot of a lot of these ideas through the vehicle of irony and humor and kind of gross out humor was something very very new and and as we've seen it's allowed very extreme ideas to penetrate right through to government essentially so the book gets billed as a kind of novel about the alt-right and it seems to me it's, you know, maybe more accurately also about the psychic crisis engendered by an encounter with the alt-right, by an encounter with neo-fascism, because it, it doesn't start actually with, with, with that. It, start, it seems important to me that it doesn't start, you know, with the fascists. You know, the novel works its way through this series of episodes of psychic crisis and most of them certainly begin prior to that encounter and it, seems to start with this much broader sense of crisis, a personal crisis rooted in kind of apprehension about mor- mortality. But it's also kind of externalises a sense of the world is spiralling into decline, a fascination with images of war, nightmares about sort of the fragility and, and contingency of, 
uh, your protagonist's individual existence, but that of his culture as well. And that seems, you know, important to me on a couple of fronts. Like one is that there's this sort of reflexive question here: how much of this is a genuinely external phenomenon? How much of it is a midlife crisis? And your protagonist is like quite charmingly, I think, actually aware of this question, and though it, though he can't, I think, answer it. But the second, and and it's a sense that builds on that, is there's there's this suggestion that what the novel is talking about is in some sense a general social question. It's not just related to midlife crisis or experiences of human morality, you know, midlife walk in a, a dark wood, um, nor is it kind of reducible to, to the effects that, you know, this disruptive upsurge of these neo-fascists and alt-writers and the like have had in our collective life. So, so, so the, the crisis precedes their emergence. Does that make sense as a reading? I mean, how plausible is it, do you think, to speak of a generalised crisis of that kind? I mean, firstly, the, I think that's exactly right as a reading of the book. And the, the interest for me in writing it as a novel, really, rather than just exploring these things in an essay or something like that, was to try and find a way of talking about how these different things layer onto each other. I think there is a, a sense of social crisis uh, that's a sort of generalised thing and that, uh, that extends beyond the borders of one particular country and, and we could have a conversation about the various factors that might contribute to that. But I have a character who has a very particular kind of sort of social and class position. He's, you know, he's, a, he's a sort of bourgeois writer and his, in, and his interests are, are, are very much located a, around a sort of slightly old-fashioned notion of writerly selfhood. Um, he wants, he's going to Germany on a residency in order to write a book about lyric poetry. You know, uh, he's, he feels he wants to kind of commune with the sort of spirits of the great German romantics. And, I mean, he has a certain sort of better humour with regard to himself and he kind of is aware that part of his interest in that is that he just wants to feel himself like that. He wants to experience the luxuriousness of a kind of deep, spiritual, grounded selfhood. And what happens to him is exactly the opposite. He, when he in, introspects, he doesn't find anything there. He doesn't find that kind of luscious experience of being a person that he feels you know, one ought to have as a poetic writer. Uh, he finds a sort of jumbled set of impressions and he has a kind of early encounter with one of his colleagues on this residency who's a, a particularly blunt uh, neurophilosopher who just informs him that he's just a population of neurons and his ideas about selfhood and agency are, are sort of epiphenomenal and, and that, frankly, his entire field of study is, is basically nonsense. And this this is a sort of prelude to much more kind of intense and serious sort of attacks on 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 his sense of the world, but the kind of background to it is a is his sort of wider sense of of malaise and his and his sense that there's something contingent about the the prosperity and security that that he has. You know, he he lies awake worrying about the. The border crisis in Europe, the book's taking place 2015, 2016, and, and, and it's a, at a moment when um, the notion of, you know, any family would look on the television or look on the internet and find images of people who looked very similar to them having to drag their, you know, what little they had in the world uh, on foot through uh, Eastern Europe or into boats in the Mediterranean. Um 
you know, and you know, you you wonder, you wonder whether what would you know were were the world different? Would you be able to to survive, or would you succumb in that situation? So he's kind of he's connecting a kind of personal crisis to that sort of crisis, and then he gets distracted from the book that he's totally failing to write about lyric poetry by binge watching an extremely violent nihilistic American TV cop show. And he begins to suspect that, that this show is kind of selling a, a worldview, that there's something a bit more sophisticated behind its depictions of a dog-eat-dog world where uh, no everybody has lost their moral compass. Um, and he eventually has an encounter with the showrunner of the show and it's confirmed that this guy has a, has a set of kind of extreme right positions that he's he's sort of laundering through through his tv show so it's it's a sense of these all these things on different levels connecting together and it and it is a way also of talking about a kind of complacency that i've i've been very worried about for years and i felt that uh that there was a very very uh myopic centrist consensus around i suppose you call it the overton window what's politically possible what is you know what what could be coming down the pike and in the last few years we've seen that consensus smashed and we've seen that a lot of uh, supposedly sensible grown-up commentators really had not got the full picture at all and in a way the book is also kind of trying to portray somebody having that experience you know the protagonist it, it, he doesn't have the same politics I do and he's he's kind of similar to me in some in some ways but he's also allowing me to kind of poke him poke him with a stick for some of his uh uh, some of his assumptions about the world. It's sort of amazing to to go to to Germany and hope to commune with the great Romantic writers and end up sort of obsessed with Kleist, <laughs> and uh, who is this sort of really really bizarre proto incel figure. Um, and I think we I think we should come on to talk about him actually because he's kind of an interesting you know, bridge in the book between the between uh, between then and now and, and between you know these 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 kind of various influences. But you know I think the other thing going on early in the book. Yeah, and it, uh, uh, as you say, that there are these these sort of multiple layers of you know, dislocation going on, and so there's this you know ongoing theme, and it's a theme actually. I say at the beginning of the book, it's a theme throughout the book, is this question of surveillance and surveillance capitalism, and uh, the way in which kind of selfhood is formed through surveillance. And you know, this is a question I think, especially in the first couple of parts of the book, um, and and at this institute, uh, you know, there is this kind of really bizarre like neoliberal cult of transparency. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of wonderful. I mean, you, you mentioned your sort of neurophilosopher, but it's kind of really very sharp satire on you know, really the worst kind of academics. It's sort of totally appalling, smug, and in some ways kind of incredibly small positivist, right? You know, he, he thinks himself and his worldview is like the natural terminus of history. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, your, your protagonist's sense of reality is fraying and, and, and this sense of Kind of surveillance and metricization is is it seems to me pretty key there, and it's interesting that you put these neoliberal kind of champions of openness and transparency, um, you know, next to these chapters. This incredible sort of story within the story is very affecting and quite compelling story of of the total degradation of of the experience of social surveillance under the Stasi. Uh, and you know, it invites some really interesting comparisons. There's some quite difficult comparisons. So, why why was surveillance so compelling and so central to your account? It was really the starting point 
of, of thinking about the novel. I mean, the question I, I, I had to myself really was, what does it do to your sense of self to, uh, to feel that you're, you're being watched? And our uh, culture now has, has surprisingly easily relinquished a previous standard of privacy which uh, it told itself was very, very central to it. Um, I mean, and now we are accustomed to the idea that there could be, uh, I mean, with our phones, with these kind of household speakers that people have, you are in most situations either actually or potentially being watched or listened to. And I... I'm curious as to what that does to our kind of uh, our behaviour, how that inhibits us and how that prevents us having certain sorts of um, transgressive thoughts and, and feelings. In the book, I, I my my character gets into quoting such, or there's quite a good moment early on in, in um, uh, being in nothingness where he talks about a peeping Tom, so there's a there's a guy looking through a keyhole in a darkened corridor, and it, and while he's just looking at what he's looking at, he's completely focused. He's unaware of himself. He's just he's all agency. Uh, and then as soon as he hears a noise in the corridor, he realizes it's possible somebody's seen him doing this shameful thing, and he becomes hyper conscious of himself and all of his position, of his situation, of his you know every every aspect of himself suddenly becomes present because he's potentially being contemplated by the other as um yeah that kind of sense that the other is looking over your shoulder is is a great source of um uh, of of sort of second guessing and um I mean, it's a great political tool. I mean, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the way that surveillance states like the Stasi worked was the uncertainty about whether you were being watched or not. I mean, if you had to factor that into all your decisions, then you would take the conservative choice about uh, saying the anti-state thing, going to the place, meeting the people. Um, I've, you know, this is a book set in, in Berlin. And it came out of six months that I spent living there, and and inevitably Berlin is a is a city that confronts you with history, and it has these, it has these very sort of visible traces of its history. You know, you walk through Mitter, and there are the, the fifty cal bullet holes and and the walls of the buildings. You know, you're 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 aware of the of the war. You're aware of. Um, the deportations. There are the Stolpersteine in the in sunk into the pavement. These brass uh, cobbles with the names of people who were deported out of particular buildings, and there is the very recent but amazingly distant somehow uh, experience of of the German Democratic Republic. Um, and when I was thinking about surveillance, and I was thinking about the experience of a writer under surveillance, I mean, I started, I think, fairly. There's a sort of very obvious connection to start thinking about the Stasi surveillance of writers and intellectuals, and in especially in the latter part of the uh, of the life of the GDR, when they had to be a bit more circumspect about these things. You know, back in the fifties, they could they could behave like a straightforward Stalinist state. You know, you transgress, they put you in the basement, and eventually they shoot you. But when they when it got to the sort of 60s onwards, the mid-60s onwards, they had to be much more um, sensitive to public opinion or international public opinion. And they were in, in ways they didn't want to avow, very dependent on financial flows from, from the West. 
I mean, there's a whole kind of history of East Germany that could be written through their dependence on West German subsidy. So they had to be, they had to kind of keep their intellectuals in check in slightly more subtle ways. And the Stasi developed a whole uh, discipline called operative psychology. Uh, there was a university, a Stasi university in Potsdam and the sort of western suburbs of Berlin where you could go and study this. And, and it, um, it was devoted to how you basically how you suppress dissent i mean both both how you break up networks of people by sowing discord and rumor and uh and in other ways degrading their ability to trust each other but also how you actually sort of internally demolish a person uh and the the, the kind of um dissidents who would have the full uh works kind of uh, 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 visited upon them. Um, the technique was called zersetzung or corrosion or undermining. And they would put big teams on a single person and and they would kind of organise just a sort of a, a degradation of all your hopes and dreams, really. Like you, if you, you go to the, the post office to mail a letter, that the letter gets lost. You come out, someone's let your bicycle tyres down. Uh, you go for the promotion at work, you don't get it. Um, and then you come back to your apartment and you realize someone's been in your apartment and they've just moved all the chairs around. And so there's no there's no private space, there's no there's nothing that is just yours. The state is always at least potentially there. And this kind of terrible just terrible kind of experience of the stress of living under that kind of pressure for years and years. You know, has left psychological scars on some of the victims. That there is, there's, a, there's one psychologist in Berlin whose practice is still just treating Stasi victims. But during that time, I was looking at this, and the obvious thing for me, I thought, would be to kind of make a parallel writer character. But I became increasingly interested in what happened with the punk scene in 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 East Germany. There was this sort of very home made nascent punk scene i mean they couldn't get the records they couldn't get the clothes they pretty much had to kind of you know they almost had to imagine punk for themselves or reimagine punk for themselves and they were teenagers and 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 but the stasi was completely convinced that they were in some way an instrument of the cia or some other kind of attempt to undermine the state and so very very sort of serious energy was devoted to smashing punk and I ended up writing about that, and that's the that's the parallel story that I set up in 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 parallel to the the story of the writer on his residency is the story of a uh, a teenage girl who's part of this um, Berlin punk scene in the nineteen eighties. And I, you know, I, in researching that, I you know, I went and talked to people. I've, I've met one or two of the of the first generation of punks, and it was a completely surreal situation. You walk out of your door as a seventeen year old. And they pick you up just because of the way you're dressed. I mean, it's, it was it was very shocking to me the idea that that quite apolitical impulse was was seen as as, as so uh, threatening. But it's 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 sort of startling actually, like the, because the the trite comparison would be to say, well, okay, so here's an era of kind of explicit state sanctioned you know, uh, undermining corruption, degradation, etc. Um, and, you know, compared to now where actually, you know, it's done consensually and it's done, you know, through the, uh, you know, it, it's done in a much less aggressive and much less kind of psychologically destructive, but it's much more low grade and much more universal. Um, and yet at the same time, it's, it sort of becomes much more complicated than that, I think. You know, I mean, you know, one of the, the ways you tell the stories is, is not just that 
um, you know, the, the manipulation of the woman who's the protagonist of the uh, East German part of the story. You know, it's not just that she's used, it's that using her was actually pointless. There was no point. You know, it's just wanton degradation. And it's very, very difficult uh, and really quite, quite startling uh, denouement to that section that actually it's, it, you know, it's, it's worse than it having a point. It's worse because it has no point. Yeah, and the and the ways that people have to live with with those discoveries after the um, after the fall of the wall. You know, I, I spoke to various people, or I've, I've over the years I have met various people who had Stasi files and who were the objects of surveillance, and people who were very shocked to find who was who was watching them, and and also and the and the kind of the sort of moral easiness of looking back on it, you can say, well, I wouldn't have been an informer, I would have been a brave resistant. And um, and you look at the situations and people are entrapped into working with the Stasi, people are basically given few options and um, they end up getting a great kind of sort of personal costs. They... they you know, they do things that, that they hate doing. And then, you know, after, after the wall comes down, they're given this sort of snitch label that follows them around forever, whereas other people are who, you know, were a hair's breadth away from them are are, are kind of uh, hailed as, as heroes. I mean, it became obvious to me that there was a sort of contingency about everything that, that happened there. I mean, to a certain extent, you could you could attempt to behave ethically or, or politically according to your choices, but so much of it was um, out of out of your control. And that, for me, writing it, that was the sort of revelation, the kind of, uh, the fact that there was no r- real, you know, bright line between between people who are now thought of as collaborators and people who are now thought of uh, as, as dissidents. You know, often it could have, it could have been very, very different. Right, and I mean, I think one of the things that, that the novel does so interestingly is, is sort of it circles back to that question of the sort of very difficult dark space behind the eyes, that, that place that's very hard to examine. And there's a refrain um, or sort of repeated reference to what I think is now an increasingly sort of famous part of, of Hannah Arendt's uh, work on this stuff, which is all about you know, there be, it being not only difficult to kind of excavate the motivations uh, or the kind of interior aspect of kind of human political motivation but it is like actively dangerous and you know potentially degrading to politics to do so right that 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 if you you know if you insist on opening uh the heart and sort of rooting out hypocrisy in that sense then you know you you, you head down a road to to something pretty dangerous i was going to talk about transparency there i mean the you know the idea of uh you know one of the the aspects of the of the story is that the the institution that the writer has uh gone on his fellowship to be a part of turns out to be run because of a bequest of a big german industrialist who had this sort of i don't know habermasian idea of a public sphere uh and of a of a kind of rational space of discourse where the best idea would win through and and there would be this kind of progressive movement towards an ever more perfect political settlement um and what they've built is this kind is this notion of a sort of slightly enforced transparency everybody has to work in the same space in there and despite the fact that they're all kind of high level academics there's a level of monitoring that um that feels 
intrusive and feels much more kind of like the sort of thing that people in many many other jobs have to you know have to accept as routine you know if you're in a call center your your calls are logged your bathroom breaks are, are monitored you know an amazon warehouse or whatever so there's a kind of there's a sort of class-based outrage that the, 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 the narrator has that, you know, he's this, you know, special, you know, self-motivated person and why should he be watched in, in this way? And, you know, I mean, the we think of this kind of the, 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 the state as this uh, all-seeing eye as, as a trope from 20th century totalitarianism. You know, it's the Orwellian trope, but actually... There's a kind of uh, aspect of uh, of of the this sort of very liberal notion of the public sphere that has has this kind of quality as as well. I mean, in 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 the UK, we have always accepted a very very high level of surveillance, and we don't have a culture of of, of really understanding what rights we have against the state. I mean, I remember as a as a young journalist in the in the mid nineties getting a an interview with a conservative minister who at that time was uh, rolling out surveillance cameras in small towns across the the UK. And already then I had a kind of bee in my bonnet about, about cameras and what this kind of this infrastructure would mean and how it would be deployed, it seems, and seems to me still it's a hostage to fortune. You know, even, no matter how complacent you are about who's looking right now, uh, that uh, you know how how would you feel in the future if the people looking changed? But so I, I mean I tried to put these questions to this guy, and obviously it was just not part of the of the politics that that he he understood. I mean I was also a very sort of scruffy, clearly scumbag kind of guy who you know he, <laughs> he was quite surprised had made it into his office. Um, and then he you know he just said to me, "There's a market for it. People feel safer." And I said, "But there's no you, you're putting these cameras. You're giving grants to." the village to put a couple of surveillance cameras up in the town square, even though they have no crime rate. And he said, well, people like it. People want it. It's a popular policy. And that was, that was it. And, you know, post 9-11, obviously the surveillance state metastasized into this, into this kind of all encompassing thing. And, you know, and again and again, we had the conversation about, you know, if you have nothing to hide, why are you so worried? And it's that impulse, the idea that, um, I don't know the way that Dutch people don't close their curtains to show that they've, uh, you know, that they're decent. The good Calvinists, <laughs> exactly. And it is, I think, it is a kind of uh, an idea that's quite deeply rooted in Northern European Protestant uh, culture. Um, but but there we are. I mean, we've you know whatever attempts that we made twenty years ago to try and kind of thematize this as a as a sort of uh, as as a kind of political uh, topic failed dismally and now everybody's looking very nervously at China and social credit and all that kind of thing and they're seeing the uses to which a highly networked surveillance state can can be put and it's terrifying Mm-mm. I mean I, I wonder if there's also like another aspect to this that, that kind of plays out in the novel alongside it which is that obviously you know this institute uh, of sort of you know pursuing Habermasian truth and accidentally ending up in a panoptic dystopia uh, it's also it's in Vanze. It's it's where the Vanze conference took place. It's where the final solution was decided on by Heydrich and was presented by Heydrich to, to high-ranking fascists. And I wonder if there's I mean there's something that seems to me to kind of play under some of the you know, some of the novel, which is this kind of anxiety about you know we've kind of taped off 
the the evil of fascism is kind of just that, right? Like it's this extrusion of non-human evil into the world. Whereas in some ways, like the more difficult and uncomfortable part of it, this is something that Gillian Rose says, is that like where fascism comes from is murky and it draws on many of the systems of kind of exclusion, enforcement, you know, citizen, non-citizen boundaries, which are, are shared by liberalism. I mean, you have a scene in the book where, uh, you know, Dr. Weber, who is this sort of, you know, benign, but, you know, probably sort of, you know, politely racist, you know, he inquires to the protagonist why he's not researching his own national literature um, rather than German literature. He's furious at these sort of Nazi occultists who come to his place. Um, but, you know, I mean, he, he, he himself is, you know, not a completely... Uh, uh, innocent figure in that sense and it just it it strikes me that there's this you know in in the more perceptive writing about the public sphere which I'm thinking of like uh, Oscar Necht here uh, along with Alexander Kluger he he writes that he defenders of the public sphere like they they have they think of it as this kind of antidote to fascism or you know whatever and there are plenty of those people around today Right. You know, the solution to Trumpism is like a revivified public sphere. Yeah, maybe. But like the obvious supplementary question is, you know, what was it about the extant kind of pre-fascist public sphere that made it actually insufficient to resist its rise in, in, in the kind of early mid 20th century? Like, I mean, that, and that's actually much harder. You know, it's a much more disturbing question. I mean, it was a, it was a, a bizarre thing to kind of just to be told, all right, you're living for six months in Vanze, this place with a particular geography and, uh, and, and this particular sort of name recognition as, as a sort of place of, of, of absolute moral evil. Um, and I think you're very right to focus on the dangers of, of of the discourse around the uniqueness of that event because it does isolate it from history. It does make it, as you say, this kind of unique event, this kind of arrival from the outside of something that that almost we're excused from understanding. Whereas if you say this was an outcome of, of social and historical processes taking place in that country and... and there's there was no necessary terminus to that you know the the uh the circulation of 16 millimeter film of auschwitz at the liberation was not enough to make it never again it was very it was it was shocking and it changed the public discourse but especially as we get further and further away from it our defenses are 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 lower you know germany has gone through this process of of vergangenheitsbewältigung struggle you know coming to terms with the past you know as part of a kind of national process of understanding what happened there and and that's been done with great seriousness and i think a great deal of of success Certainly here in America, where I'm speaking from, that process has never happened. I mean, and I think it's this, I mean, Britain neither. I mean, the, the sort of victors don't have to do the self-examination in the same way as the losers of any any big conflict. And the, the pushback against any kind of reasonable reckoning with with the historical processes is 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 very very violent in uh in in Britain and in the US it's it's immediately conceived of as undermining the national ability to i don't know to compete or to to kind of go forward rather than something that would be necessary in order to bring everybody together into some sort of properly grounded public sphere or or public conversation i mean it's, it i mean what happened you know if people are People are told that their experience and their history uh, didn't take place. It's a very clear signal to them that they're not full full members of the polis, or they're not full members of of of, of the group. And and so, I mean, in different ways, those those conversations have poisoned 
and this and this idea that there was a kind of uniquely moral evil that happened back there and that we won against it and and you know hooray let's go forward into the end of history all that has proved very very toxic you could write some very interesting history starting in in the 90s with the kind of post fall of the wall feeling that from hence henceforth there was a just going to be a kind of sort of managerial technocratic politics because the big issue of communism and capitalism had been sorted out and then you know the and then clearly 911 comes along and you know another other appears of absolute moral evil you know and we and the, and the forever wars start and here we are i mean i i i think uh the degradation of 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 politics in in the uk in the us and else and elsewhere around the world now is very sort of directly attributable to the kind of corners that were cut in the early days of the of the war on terror and the the kind of uh inability to actually honestly face things a kind of a kind of terrible sentiment was 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 proposed instead of an actual analysis and that sentiment has sort of has taken on orange form and and is now kind of bestriding the political stage <laughs> i mean let's let's talk a, a bit about the this kind of hypnotic fascist figure at the center of the book and he's sort of, he's sort of like this kind of you know amazing cross between a sort of more competent uh, you know, less kind of visibly physically evil Steve Bannon, maybe spiked with a bit of Nick Land. Um, like, and he's this he's kind of amazing, as you say, like TV writer dumps in these chunks of ultra reactionary thinkers in his cop dramas. Like, you know, it's, it's his question about kind of propaganda function there. Like he's this sort of hierophant of debasement. It's, it's kind of amazing. He manages to be like alternately keech and terrifying. And I think that's, quite striking because a lot of these figures are often often are and he exerts this extraordinary compulsion on the protagonist and you know we're provided with a kind of insufficient explanation for it because it's you know partly obviously a function of his developing uh, mental illness his total disorientation in the world but I don't think it's all that's going on there tell me what's behind him what you're drawing on for him well I mean I'm, I always I, I kind of noticed this rather than rather than thinking, oh, this is what I'm going to do actively. Is I've always written a lot about doubles, and I've I've always written very often. My my novels have these kind of situations where somebody's looking at, at another version of themselves or a shadow version of themselves, and 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 so in this case, there's a there's a protagonist who's got quite a quite a kind of um, esoteric set of interests. He's not a terribly popular writer. He's managed to write one sort of book of essays that has done okay and has got him this fellowship but he's a he's not a creature of the mass media and so he but like a lot of other people he's spending a great deal of his time consuming a certain sort of uh, of prestige tv drama and anton this uh, showrunner character firstly he has an enormous cultural reach and he's a he's a kind of creature of 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 la and of of of, of american tv culture in that sense um, but he has he has this hinterland, and he has a, a kind of an, an, a, almost like a kind of second a second track where he's functioning as a, as a sort of entryist for a, for a, a set of ideas and and possibly people from the extreme right, um, and and retailing a particular near reactionary sort of hyper Darwinian notion of, of of how human interaction works you know the strong shall always destroy the weak it was ever thus 
Uh, there's any any attempt to mitigate that is just sentimental. You know, the, the, the set of ideas that we're very familiar with. But I mean, I wanted him to be to be very charismatic and to have that sort of swagger that the the the, the smarter type of those guys do have. I mean, if you spend your time on you know reading reading the kind of far right intellectuals as you know sometimes I do and and, and have there's there's a style of argument a very you know a, a kind of uh, a sort of gladiatorial quality to the way that they they feel that they're just laying waste to the the pathetic uh, liberal verities of of the of the mainstream you know I mean what Nick Land termed the cathedral this time which is a, which is a which is such a sort of clever image you sort of pr- proposing a sort of a sort of a Church of Englandy kind of clerisy that is is um, protecting itself and its uh, and its interests under the under the guise of a totally irrational set of propositions. You know, I mean, they all you know they all claim that as soon as you get to anything to do to do with uh, race intelligence, I mean, they're all, they're all they're very kind of atavistic in a sense that they they're desperate to recuperate the whole lot. You know, everything is back on the table: race and IQ. Group identities, the, the 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 whole kind of supposedly buried pre nineteen forty five kind of eugenics apparatus is still sort of there, and they are tinkering with, you know, with with bits of sort of mainstreams of sociobiologist type people like kind of Stephen Pinker and Dawkins, and maybe adding a bit of epigenetics in, and uh, and a little bit of a certain sort of. Um, um, you know, evolutionary psychology in there in order to try and re-erect the same tedious uh, hierarchy. So that, as you say, there's this kind of weird combination of, of charisma and trash that sort of goes together into into a lot of these people. And and the kind of diversity of of positions as well, I think, is 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 fascinating. You know, you can get and 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 again, it's it's not none. It seems very sort of static somehow. Like, uh, I mean, you can kind of map a lot of the contemporary positions onto older positions. You know, people are worrying at the moment about the the kind of penetration of QAnon into the sort of Instagram yoga and wellness world. Look at the 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 Volkish movement in the early twentieth century. You know, look at Leben's reform and and the idea of a kind of care of the self that uh, soon turns into a sort of eugenic project for self improvement or racial self racial improvement. And and these things kind of stay. They're remarkably consistent. I mean, you can identify positions and traits and kind of map them with reasonable you know obviously there's things that things rhyme rather than having exact uh you know exact mappings but you know it's, it's again it's it's there's a whole kind of school of thought that it's it's just beyond the pale to use fascism as a descriptor for anything that's going on because you know we all know that fascism involves goose stepping and uniforms and 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 a certain set of, of furniture but actually as a kind of construction for a certain sort of politics, it seems like a very accurate one for for um, tendencies that are at work in our contemporary politics. And sorry, I mean, yeah. So your question was about Anton. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, he's he's a figure who carries all this stuff, and he's and he's and he is in some ways. Um, 
he's he's better at arguing than the than the protagonist you know and he's he's more confident and the protagonist is sort of filled with doubt he's filled with second guessing himself he kind of he can barely get up in the morning and this this other kind of uh sort of powerhouse guy with his massively popular TV show and 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 his kind of systems for uh, getting his ideas out into the world is is a you know he's I mean, he's a strong version of this. I mean, I was, it was interesting to me to make a kind of uh, uh, not a not a sort of straw man character who would easily be kind of vanquished by our hero's sensible left liberal opinions, and also the hero the, the great kind of gap in in this, the, the protagonist's entire um, sort of way of dealing with his problems is that he has absolutely no solidarity with anybody he's never he's never able to kind of conceive of himself as taking action with other with other people and i mean that's very key to me as a sort of silence in in the book you know he ends up as this very kind of broken uh paranoid figure partly because he is such a sort of uh, individualist and, and, and thinks that it is all, all resolvable to his own sort of psychological situation rather than saying in order to oppose this, uh, this set of tendencies that, that I hate and fear, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make common cause with other people. So he's kind of apolitical in that very particular sense. Right. I mean, and the, the moment that he does sort of, you know, realise that there might be something there is there is this kind of, you know, abortive and rather pathetic kind of a- attempt at an act of individual charity, you know, which is always like you know, he, he attempts to give more and more. And it's, you know, it's it, it, were it not in, in a moment of profound bleakness, it would be very, very funny, the kind of miscommunication um, that's involved in, in that. But I guess there's something also like interesting that, that goes on here, which is that, you know, there is something very queasy about how compelling some of these ideas are. I mean, you quote, you know, via the the, the work of of, of of this kind of, uh, you know, alt-right figure, uh, you, you know, there are chunks of Demestre quoted in the book. And, you know, the, 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 the rhetoric is, it's incredibly uh, startling and compelling. You know, these are the St. Petersburg... Um, dialogues which are you know never published in his lifetime and, and you know that but there are these kind of touchstone works for for kind of anti-democrats these days and i guess one of the things that that they you know that, that people from this political tradition trade on is that they have this ability to touch on the taboo they have the, t- the ability to touch on the kind of disavowed um and they can touch things there that are kind of partial truths you know it, you know Demestre is very good at identifying that there's that the world is founded in some ways on profound violence. Uh, you know, violence is in some ways foundational to our culture and our cultural reproduction. And denying that does leave us brittle and really open and vulnerable to people who want to prey on that realisation if it's just continually disavowed. Now, obviously, like, if it's reversed, like, if everything becomes violence, you know, there are some sort of left liberal accounts that want to see violence in absolutely every social interaction. I think on that level, it's it, that's another kind of concealment or disavowal. But, like... There is kind of a longer political history about kind of taming the furies and learning how to to deal with this kind of propensity to violence and acknowledging it without, you know, making it the kind of you know, what you call the sort of really, I think sometimes just the cynical operation of power, right? You know, it's it, it, that, that seems to me like quite foundational. It's something that I'm not sure the protagonist ever quite comes to, but it's it's something that was very much on my mind while reading it. I find the the whole rhetoric around nonviolence in protest and uh, and uh, the social movements very 
problematic in a certain way. And it's because of that, as you say, Maestra and his readers now are very, very well aware that the use of force is, is sort of foundational for for the state and, um, you know, in some ways for for any kind of social organisation and somebody has to be the sort of direct user of force. And it's very easy for people who find find it on a personal level kind of queasy to contemplate that, to imagine themselves as non-violent rather than the beneficiaries of violence that is... Uh, meted out on their behalf by others and it seems to me a kind of foundational moment for any political consciousness to realize that that on a personal level you may not have shot anybody today however people are shot on your behalf and uh, and and you assent to that and it's not to say that there is some alternative position where nobody gets shot because, I mean, the idea of a world without violence is, is a kind of religious notion rather than a, rather than a kind of livable reality. So a kind of realist politics has to, has to understand how it feels about the distribution of violence and it, and it, has, to, it has to find a way of, of, of looking at that and addressing that that, as you say, doesn't, doesn't put it completely off stage and doesn't make it the kind of sole determinant of human relations because clearly we don't actually live in this world where where we're kind of you know mad max kind of uh, uh in constant struggle with our neighbors and in this in this sort of uh fear and suspicion uh, um Social life does exist. Cooperation does exist. We make very complicated social structures. We do extraordinary things together, and we, and we, we do them with love, and we do them, we do them without coercing uh, each other on a daily basis. But that's you know that's but it's it's a it's a fake position to 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 say you know I don't believe in violence as you sit in your North London townhouse because it believes in you. And, um, and so, I mean, and that's, you know, that's, that's a very uncomfortable thing because it, it doesn't, it, it sort of doesn't allow anybody a kind of moral get out. And, and one of the things that Anton, the, the, the outright showrunner, kind of accuses the protagonist of is of being in bad faith about precisely this point. It's just saying, well, a lot of what you think of as your highly ethical position is just a sort of outsourcing or you know you 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 allow you can separate yourself on a personal level from the things that are being done to keep you safe and comfortable i mean you know there's a sort of popular thing here in the u.s i think it turns up in that movie american sniper where uh so sort of people would say you know the world is divided into sheep and wolves and and sheep dogs and uh the sheep is the sort of the mass of the you know the, the population who are not able to use violence wolves are predators and and the the sheep dogs are, are are these characters who see themselves as the kind of moral users of violence on behalf of the state uh, who protect the sheep from from the wolves, and you know, and that's you. Those are your choices as a position. So, you know, it's a kind of Second Amendment type reason for for sort of justifying your interest in in, in guns and camo and and busting into the state legislature. But I mean, but there is a, there is a truth to, there is a truth to that about the use of force as, as as the foundation of the state. And you know, I mean, and and Schmidt and these political theorists are, are very kind of clear that the the reason that we we um, 
allocate the use of force to the state is to uh, is to avoid a kind of wholesale deployment of force of the kind that I think a lot of American sort of Second Amendment types imagine is about to come. Yeah, the boogaloo is everybody for themselves. Yeah, well, I mean, they used to call it the Rahowa or whatever. You know, there's been all these sort of yeah. you know, messianic race war things are going to happen. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I guess like... I had this thought in mind while I was reading the, the book and it's kind of a weird weird connection to make, I guess. But it's to do with the kind of perception and reality and, and the way kind of intellectual poison can seep into, uh, you know, a mind and, and sort of undo it, really, which is, you know, part of the story here. And it's just like, it, it's it's I was thinking of Leontes in A Winter's Tale, who's like a witness to his own uh, kind of mental undoing. He basically self-plants this idea that his wife is cuckolding him. And he says it's like uh, a very 17th century thing. Like when you see a spider in the bottom of your wine glass and you wonder if it's kind of poisoned the wine and then you, you thought overtakes you and says, I have drunk and seen the spider. And, and the idea does it, undoes him totally. Like he destroys his family, he loses everything. And obviously being kind of late Shakespeare, there's this amazing moving restitution at the end by a very ambiguous sort of theatrical miracle you know, on stage and within the play, but outside of the play as well, whatever. But there are parallels here. Your protagonist drinks and sees the spider. You know, he's half conscious of his undoing. And it's that kind of corrosive scepticism of which Leontes is kind of the classic 17th century example. Is It's a work here in your protagonist, I think. And he searches for this kind of impregnable intellectual political foundation uh, on which he can construct human rights, on which he can construct equality. And he gets increasingly spun out as he can't find it. But it seems to me your restitution is much more ambiguous. There's no resolving miracle. There's no return to or you know new establishment of meaning. Uh, but the absence therefore makes one long for it. So I guess I'd like to talk just a little bit about that kind of meaning making. Was it you know because you could have ended the novel at at the high point of this guy being spun out and having his sort of you know moment of of kind of you know mad but not like totally untrue realization. Um, but you don't. There's an aftermath and. You know, some reviewers of the book see this ending as a sort of nice return to bourgeois domesticity, the red pill having become the blue pill, whatever. And I think that's wrong. Could you tell me a bit about why it's important to have the, the book end in that way and what's going on there? I mean, I think, you know, as, as, a, as a younger man and a younger writer, I probably would have ended the book on, the, on, on his sort of uh, ecstatic kind of apocalyptic vision. And I would have thought that was, that was you know, I'd, I'd solve my narrative problem with that but i i'm much more interested i mean on a, just on a sort of less elevated level i was very interested in what happens after you've had a a psychotic break you know i mean what hap- how do you regain trust with the people who you've betrayed how do you become once again seen as a responsible person and you know i mean and i wanted to write about somebody who was kind of going through that process of attempting to rebuild a life with with the people that he loved um and my protagonist has has you know left a wife and a daughter at home and then and then spins out completely and then comes back and and I write about how they're trying to repair their marriage after he's after he's done this but also her politics are a kind of practical New York elite liberal politics which in which involve in 2016 really getting behind the Clinton campaign and and doing you know and and uh, going to the park and registering voters as they as they're at the farmers market and uh, holding fundraisers and and really 
understanding political horizons into the, in those points. And and the protagonist is, you know, he basically he basically makes the decision that he's just going to support her in doing that because that's you know that's not what he believes about the world or thinks is reasonable. I mean, he has. Um, opinions about the kind of imperial wing of the Democratic Party that that are, are he he has to disavow in order to in order to kind of do this work of repairing his his life with his wife and the, you know the book does end uh, end at, a, at an election watching party and I and I I remember very well being surrounded by people who had more. I mean, you know, I mean, and in fact, even people who didn't have terrible amount of faith in 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 that sort of um, establishment Democratic Party politics, but who who suddenly were having the experience of a kind of reality that they were banking on, that they were so people had a picture of the next day. I mean, there were people who were kind of their little daughters were staying up in order to see the first woman president be inaugurated. I mean, there was all this kind of symbolic stuff that was very sort of separate from any actual policy agenda. And I I was actually sitting there with 4chan open on my phone, I remember, that night and kind of watching the other stream of, of opinion and, and feelings and watching them kind of try and meme Trump into, into the presidency and then feel as if their meme magic was working. They had this extraordinary kind of... Uh, communal experience going on on this chan that their that their efforts were somehow kind of you know said that they were very powerful that they had they brought a new reality into being and and that that very the dual tracks of that experience were quite kind of profound for me in understanding how the world is working these days and that was a sort of seed for how the novel i mean i was already writing the novel by that point but the the um, that how it would proceed and that, that would be that would be part of it. So, I mean, in a way, at the end, the the, the protagonist he's just kind of undercover. I mean, it, there's a version of things where he'd stand up and kind of say, "I told you so." Look, this is, but he also feels guilty that in some way he's kind of he's a conduit for that bad alternative reality to kind of take over and and. Uh, you know, while he had no particular faith in in the ability of the Clinton Democratic Party to promote uh, social justice, uh, you know, at the same time he knows that what's coming is going to be worse, as indeed it has been. I mean, I, I just I think it's just sort of interesting, that, you know, that section. He he visits his psychiatrist, who's who's sort of inadequate actually to the experience that he's had. You know, she she sort of sticks on some medication, and says basically, don't worry so much. And so so his experience is like both you know, much deeper and much more serious than I think a lot of our, our culture allows for. And he doesn't know what to do with it. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously at the same time an experience of fracturing, an experience of psychosis, one that requires actual healing. And actually, you know, the end of the book is, is really, I think, quite, quite rigorous on, on what that healing might look like. But it, it nonetheless doesn't mean that, like, the truth content of, of his experience isn't negligible because there are two possibilities in front of us right now. And it's really interesting reading this just ahead uh, of the next election because... There are these two conclusions, like the political system might heal and expel him, and that's you know no unambiguously good thing if it heals and doesn't change at all. And so I, I find myself circling back to that kind of crisis with which the, the book starts, like that this kind of exhausted and platitudinous liberalism, this kind of festering crisis. 
Yeah, I mean, and I, I've seen this cycle here several times now in several different ways. I mean, when Obama was first elected, it was fascinating to me how quick and broad the notion was of a post-racial America. It was like, you know, man stands up, waves, and everyone's going, Woof, well, that's over now. And uh, and it was it was such a tell. It was such a sort of a, wi- a wish to sort of foreclose a process that actually, you know, of reconciliation that needed to happen and, 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 you know, and that failure to acknowledge it, again, is one of the things that brought us here. And likewise, if Biden wins on uh, November the 3rd, I fully expect to see a very, very premature and, and worrying shutting down of, a, of, of the processes of accounting. I mean, in terms of actual criminal justice i think there will there'll be a lot of horse trading and there'll be a lot of uh, there'll be a lot of people who are who are able to disavow the things they did back there but more generally what america wants to believe culturally is is that um this was a blip this was an aberration that the the system worked the constitution held and and i mean i think there's there's a high chance that biden will win the vote i also think that um with a new extreme conservative majority on the Supreme Court, there'll be no solution to the various kind of anti-democratic gerrymandering and, and other kind of electoral process related things that are going on. You know, sadly, Biden presidency is not going to solve very much in the big picture. I mean, you know, I mean, people will kind of pop their heads up out of this sort of Trump hole they've been in for four years and go like, oh, yeah, there's climate change, isn't there? I mean, there, there are nothing... Nothing has been dealt with, and most things have got have been have been neglected in the last four years because we've all been wondering about whether there's a tape of the president being urinated on in a hotel room, and <laughs> we're we're in a. I mean, the crisis will will only will only continue rolling, and it will be much much harder to organise politically around that in the face of a, a democratic administration. I mean, that's partly what happened during the Obama years because Obama was so personally popular it was very difficult to interrogate things like the drone war to interrogate the kind of continuity of, of sort of you know of, of neoliberal uh, economic policies this you know failure to kind of do various sorts of redistribution that was needed so and there's, there's an exhaustion I mean people are absolutely exhausted here you know and 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 so I think there'll be a kind of a sort of messy period for a year or two and then about halfway through when when another election kind of comes comes around i don't know we'll get kind of the, the tom cotton ticket or 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 whoever and and then maybe you know maybe we'll make some kind of attempt to do that but i th- i think you know environmental legislation is going to be off the table with the supreme court there's going to nothing is really going to get sorted out and so i would expect in the kind of you know, for the rest of my life, certainly to be living in a time of of, of sort of rolling crisis, he said cheerily. Weimar it is then. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, what happens? What happens if the next version is is a competent version? I mean, Trump has has you know, Trump has kind of. Uh, he's a sort of political savant in a certain way in that he kind of understood the, the immediacy of his voice and, and his ability to kind of bypass a lot of um, a lot of conventional ways of doing things. And he has very kind of cannily turned the Republican Party into his clients, 
You know, every, you know every, I mean, the idea of, of patronage is now, I mean, we're, you know, we're well along the way to a kind of Russian style oligarchy. You know, I mean, some of that will go if there is a Biden administration. If there's a Trump administration, I, I, I think we, we will have a full transition to a kind of Putin style uh, oligarchy. Um, and and I, I'm not sure I want to be around for that, but I don't know where else seems like a good good bet i mean never i imagine everywhere in the world is trying to yeah it's not so great over here either. <laughs> it's really not i mean yeah i mean the, the the kind of the particular kind of boris johnson version of of conservatism has a sort of family resemblance to trumpism in that they've they're learning a lot about certainly about the communications side of things i mean the just the unwillingness to engage with with criticism the kind of flat you know using government uh uh, communications to lie to the people. Um, I mean, and Cummings's ability to centralise his uh, sort of power base in the cabinet office outside any control from Parliament. You know, I mean, that's a, it's a slightly different kind of form of the same thing. I mean, and Cummings, I think, is is maybe less interested in 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 just the sort of raw accumulation of wealth than a kind of uh, a sort of technocratic lever pulling style of, of 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 government with which doesn't pay too much attention to the the ignorant democratic multitude i think that's it have i missed anything no i think we've had a pretty wide-ranging if, if bleak conversation <laughs> <laughs> all my conversations are bleak these days <laughs> my only two well that's it for this week I don't know whether that's a bleak note to leave you on or not I don't think so I think hope has to have the ashes of realism on its tongue so as not to be delusion Harry Kunzri's amazing Red Pill is out now and in the UK you can spot it in shops by Kleist's creepy laser eyes following you around this store not that we go into shops anymore of course Uh, You can and should also check out Harry's podcast, Into the Zone. And look, if I'm promoting a non-Navara podcast, you better know it's because it's good. My thanks also to Chow Ravens at Navara Media for his superb editing work on this interview and to 65 Days of Static for letting me mess around with their music. That's it. Stay locked to Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm still James Butler and I'll be back next week. Bye-bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>